This is The Tea on International Arbitration with Nicole Silver and Gaela Gering-Flores. Nicole Silver and I are practitioners in the field of international arbitration. Nicole is a partner at Greenberg Traurig, and I'm a partner at Arnold and Porter. Nicole and I are also the chairs of two committees of the DC Bar International Law Community. Nicole is the chair of the International Investment and Finance Committee and I of the International Dispute Resolution Committee. In normal times, we or other folks in the field of international arbitration might be speaking with you from your favorite conference room. But as we all know, we're not in normal times. And just in case someone is listening to this in the future, it is June 18th, 2020. And we are in the midst of a global pandemic and the world, particularly the United States, is also having a deep reckoning with respect to white supremacy, racism, and police brutality. So not normal times. So we turn to the podcast, and this happens to be our maiden voyage. And what we aim to do with this podcast is give you some bite-sized information regarding international arbitration topics of interest that you might consume at your leisure. So now I will cede the floor to Nicole so that she can introduce today's topic and today's speaker. Great, thanks Gaela. Our topic for today's podcast is the current and future state of investment treaty arbitration in Europe and perhaps even beyond. As many of our listeners know, the majority of EU member states just last month in May signed an agreement for the termination of roughly 130 intra-EU bilateral investment treaties. The decision to do so was, of course, not a surprise because it is seen as a necessary means to implement the European Court of Justice's decision in the 2018 Acnea case, which found that investor state arbitration between EU member states was incompatible with EU law. Nonetheless, The announcement is still regarded as highly significant, and many have described this event as the end of investor state arbitration in Europe and possibly beyond. Gaela and I have invited as our guest today, Manaz Malik, to help us break down the import of this recent announcement. Ms. Malik practices as a barrister and serves as an arbitrator, specializing in complex international disputes involving investors and states from one of the world's leading barristers Chambers, 20 Essex, in London. In addition, her appointment by the World Bank on the ICSID Annulment Committee makes her one of the youngest ever appointed to an ICSID Annulment Committee since records began, and the youngest woman. Ms. Malik has also received the Financial Times League Innovator of the Year Award. Manaz, we welcome you to the show. We can't wait to hear your thoughts on our topic today, both as a UK practitioner and an expert in the field. But before we begin, I would just remind our listeners that the UK is no longer part of the EU, or at least is in the process of withdrawing from it, and also that the UK did not sign the agreement to terminate intra-EU bids, and that there were only four other EU member states that did not sign the treaty. They are Austria, Finland, Sweden, and Ireland. So with that introduction, Manal's welcome. And if you're ready, we can begin with our first question. Thank you, Nicole, and thank you, Gaila, and um, a very warm hello to 
anyone listening to this podcast. So, Manaz, um, what do you think? Do you think that this treaty represents the death knell for investor state arbitration in Europe? And I realize that this is a rather heady question. So, you know, please take and answer this question however you like, but maybe start perhaps with the message or with what message this treaty is giving to investors that reside in Europe. Um, well, I think your use of uh, death knell is, is very relevant. And um, I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is, you, you might know this, but there were actually three uh, funeral bells uh, that were rung. So the first was when there was impending death, then there was the bell rung right after the death, and then the third bell was um, when the corpse was making its way to the funeral. So I guess the first question is, which death knell are we talking about? But um, I, I think either way, it's it's safe to say that the bell has certainly been rung. Which of the three, I guess, remains to be seen? Um, sorry about the the, the rather... Uh, the deviation to history, but um, I wanted to put your question in context. Um, the, the treaty that you mentioned is the agreement that, as you rightly put it, uh, 23 European member states signed um, on the 5th of May, and it is available publicly, and I encourage the listeners to read it for themselves. The treaty itself is uh, fairly short, but the annex contains um, the treaties that are terminated. So you, you have this treaty, 23 member states have signed it, and between them, they have terminated 130 intra-EU bits. Now, it remains to be seen how this treaty is going to be interpreted as tribunals look at it and see whether it is applicable up to, to the investor state arbitration clauses. And I won't provide an opinion on that very interesting and complex legal issue. What I do want to focus is on the messaging. Uh, you have a very clear um, indication here that the EU member states um, do not wish to be bound by ISDS clauses in their treaties. And this follows on from obviously the ACMIA decision, which found um, ISDS clauses incompatible with EU law. And, and for quite some time, um, one of the counter arguments to the European Commission and EU member states making um, the, the argument that intra-EU bits are incompatible with, with EU law has been that, well, what about the hundreds of treaties you have? Why don't you just terminate them? And that is precisely what the EU member states have done. So the first point is, well, they made that clear announcement. They've, they've, they've put it in, in legal effect in the form of a treaty, but they've gone one step further and also terminated the sunset clauses. Now, these treaties have clauses which allow investors to invoke the treaties even after they've been terminated for existing investments. So that is a very strong signal for even future investment. And the messaging is absolutely clear. Now, the big question is, how will tribunals interpret these, this treaty in, within the ambit of the existing uh, BITs that contain ISDS clauses? Yeah, thank you. 
Thanks, Manaz. Especially, I, I was really interested in uh, what you said about the sunset clauses. Um, just in my experience, I think that we've heard a lot of people talk about sunset clauses and, and what it might mean theoretically if a state tried to actually terminate sunset clauses of, 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 of treaties. And um, yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be a very interesting road to see how that is interpreted and to see if tribunals buy the notion that a state can somehow retroactively terminate a sunset clause. Um, I can see people going into very interesting hermeneutical loops on that notion that you could terminate a clause that is meant to govern the termination of the treaty? Um, that's a really, <laughs> it's a very interesting question. Um, but so the next question that, that we have for you is, what you think the effects might be? Um, you know, as, as we've seen in, in international investment arbitration for quite some time now, uh, we've seen a variety of investors attempt to sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, uh, reorganize themselves to be nationals of the country that they really wish to be a national of, to be able to sue their the targeted host country. Now that this death knell is present in the EU, do you think we can expect to see European investors uh, in the near term and perhaps long term seeking to funnel their investments or perhaps reorganize their investments into the EU through other countries, um, perhaps through the US or maybe even the UK given, given Brexit. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I think the UK is in a very interesting position and as, as you may know that the European Commission has started infringement proceedings against the UK um, in relation to the, the, the BITs, and I don't have sight on what's been happening with it. But I think it'll be interesting to see how that, that pans out. Um, the US, of course, is an interesting route. Um, I, I just had a quick look at the US investment treaties, and there are a few with, with some of the key European Union states, like Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Croatia, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, and Slovakia. I don't have the complete list with me, but and and the good thing about the U.S. treaties is, as as you know, they they cover pre-establishment rights as well. So the scope of protection is a bit broader. But then you don't have the same number of treaties that you would have found in an intra-EU context. So I think the U.S. will certainly be an interesting option for those looking to. Um, seek investment protection through through other countries. But equally, there are other jurisdictions such as Mauritius and, you know, other, other sort of centers of um, where companies can be set up with relative ease that might provide a home for some of the companies looking at tax efficient and uh, investments uh, that are protected by bilateral investment treaties. So, yes, I think investors will be looking at other bilateral investment treaties. That, that is natural because the general perception is that 
bilateral investment treaties offer stronger protection and a, a, a different forum to you know, set out your claim and, and, and seek compensation than, than, than the EU mechanisms. Great, thank you. I, and I, I assume that this would, it, these are interesting times for the Netherlands because it, you know, we all know that many, many investor claimants tried to funnel or have attempted to funnel their claims um, and their investments through the Netherlands to be able to take advantage of at least what was seen as relatively broad provisions in the Netherlands fits. Um, it'll, this is proving to be quite interesting on, on a lot of levels. I do know that the Netherlands has a new model bit out, which is a little bit more protective of states. So it would seem that the Netherlands has, um, is turning away from the old guard of bits and, and going into this new generation of bits. And now uh, with the whole termination of, of intra-EU bits, I think we're heading into quite a different era. Manaj, given that there is at least the opportunity or the potential for investors to seek alternate jurisdictions to whether to reorganize or to structure from the get-go, whether it's Mauritius or, or the U.S., even in light of this option, do you think that the effect of this, this treaty and the termination of all these intra-EU bits will slow down investment between and among European Union states? So in other words, what do you think of the, the effect of this treaty will be? Will it slow down investment in the EU, particularly between EU member states? I think that's, that's a difficult question to answer simply because the link between um, investment and the signing of BITs or, or the conclusion of BITs is, it has never really been made out. So I guess the the first question is, you know, were these intra-EU BITs responsible for the flows of investment within the EU? And what will happen once it's taken away? Um, I mean, there are obviously intra-EU mechanisms for the protection of investment, but as I mentioned, it's it's a different track altogether with very different jurisprudence. And certainly you, you won't see the generous damages awards that you will find within the ISDS spectrum. So I think the short answer to your question is, I don't know, because it, it really depends on the first point. You know, is there a link or do investors continue to make investments, um, you know, in blissful ignorance of, of whether there is a bit or not? And then later on, they discover one when, when there is a dispute. So I, I, I don't know the answer to that question, I'm afraid, and I think time will tell. But just to try and answer it, I think you will find perhaps where investors are aware of these BITs and find solace in them. They might be worried um, and they may decide uh, to find other means of securing their investments, such as seeking political risk insurance maybe, or uh, going through other countries uh, to find um, uh, treaty protection. Thanks, yeah, and thank you for breaking down that because I, I think it is interesting and I, like you, 
you know, I, I don't know that that link between investment and ISDS protection has ever been thoroughly proven, but certainly talked about. Uh, Gaila, next yeah, question. It is, it is really interesting. You know, of course we have the example of Brazil. There was, there was plenty of foreign investment in Brazil and Brazil has for quite some time essentially uh, declined to become a part of the bilateral investment treaty regime. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe we'll see that this is, this will be the great experiment to see if uh, at least intra-EU investments are affected at all by this. Because presumably all the EU countries are, can avail themselves of the EU justice system, um, which should, at least in theory, they, they should all be fine with. Uh, it's a it's an interesting experiment, um, but I think as as one of our last questions to you, Manaz, given what's happened with ACMIA and this new treaty to terminate intra EU bits, it, it it certainly seems that states are turning more and more toward reducing any potential exposure to being sued under investment treaties. Uh, and watching, in particular, the EU do this, you wonder, is this a harbinger of things to come? Do you think that this agreement between the EU countries to terminate uh, EU bits is, is essentially a sign of the times and that we're going to see more of this in different ways? In the, in the near future? It is definitely a signal. And to some extent, it is natural. Um, you know, you've got these treaties, a lot of them were signed quite a while ago now, um, including a lot of the intra-EU BITs, quite a large number of them were signed before these countries became EU member states. Certainly some of the treaties even um, that the US has with a number of the EU countries I mentioned date from the early 90s when these economies were in transition. The, 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 these treaties were signed at a particular time um, in these countries' state of development. And today you have the disputes, which is a different time. And you can see that the disputes have brought to light the fact that a large number of these treaties were signed. And a number of states have just had a chance to take stock of the implications of these treaties. So um, the EU obviously has done that at, at a fairly, uh, in a very large way, because you have 130 treaties, you have um, the whole interaction with the EU law. So that is a, a very large undertaking that the EU has 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 done. But But I agree with you, it acts as a a very strong signal for other states who might then say, well, yes, we also signed these treaties at a particular time in our development for a reason without perhaps fully understanding the implications that they may bring in the form of investor state disputes. Now, this is 2020. We know that we are at a different juncture and let's let's revisit that. So, Yes, to both your, your points, I think that the EU development will 
um, signal uh, states to reconsider these treaties. And, and as you said, this is something that they're doing already. So it will give them um, more encouragement to do so. Thanks, Manaz. Um, I actually, I, I have one more question for you, um, but I thought it would be nice for listeners to hear what else you've been thinking about, what else has been at the top of your mind or essentially at the top of your international arbitration issue playlist <laughs> lately, <laughs> other than intra-EU bits. Um, so if there were one other international arbitration issue that you wish were getting more press or that more people were talking about, what might that be? Gosh, I've had time to think of many things at this time. Um, I'm sure everybody has. And I think it's, it's, it's really a question of taking stock of, uh, you know, we've all had a chance to breathe a bit. Um, in my case, it's been the inability to travel. And that means I can sit put and, 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 and just think. And one of the things that when you start thinking, you stop thinking about what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. And the international arbitration system as a whole is so dependent on travel. And, you know, in some ways, it seems like such a luxury to be able to see people, to talk to them, to meet with them. Um, but at the same time, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And we are able to function, perhaps not perfectly, but we are able to communicate using technology. And I guess the issue on my mind is whether the, the impact of saving time, money, um, and energy generally with, uh, with having virtual hearings or using technology is, is offset by any benefits we have in an in-person interaction. And, and that's what I'm really wrestling with. I'm trying to quantify uh, the differences in experiences and see whether they cancel each other out. But very happy to, to hear your thoughts on, on that issue. I think that's absolutely at the top of, of everyone's minds. It certainly shows in the number of webinars that have been popping up all around the world, um, just with advice for people on, you know, running virtual hearings or just, you know, trying to deal with the logistics and mechanics of running an international arbitration when when you can't travel. Um, that's right. We kind of all have this moment where we're all in one place. We're not really going anywhere. <laughs> and it is quite anathema to the world that we once knew. In a way, necessity breeds invention. So now we're all getting quite used to, you know, Zoom calls and hearings and trying to gather documents and evidence and speak with potential experts and witnesses virtually and, and trying to make it work. But I think we're also finding the limits to that, to that virtual world as well. It's very, I, I think, I think, you know, as we've all experienced, hearings are extremely taxing things, just, you know, physically and, and emotionally for the people who are involved in the hearing. And I don't, I don't think that 
anyone could have necessarily predicted that doing a virtual hearing is maybe just as, if not even more taxing. <laughs> um, and I, I really think that it's going to require some rethinking of how we engage with this virtual system um, because it, it definitely has a different effect than doing things in person. So I think we're, we're going to have to think outside of, our, of the box that we were in, in our very physical boxes and kind of think inside the now virtual box and figure out how we're going to go forward. And I definitely don't think that we've figured it all out yet. Nicole, do you have, do you have thoughts on this new world? I think it's going to be interesting. And I, I think that going forward, given the limitations of conducting everything virtually or, or living in our boxes, uh, you know, there will be some good and some better that comes out of this. So, I, you know, are we moving to a whole new world? Probably not. But I think uh, hopefully we will be able to implement some of the lessons we've learned during this phase and cut down on unnecessary travel and, and expense for clients. But, you know, will it be a wholesale change? Probably not. But hopefully we can take a lot of the lessons learned and use them wisely. Pandemics always bring some development. And I, I live in London and I was quite interested to see that, you know, the garden squares that you might have seen in, in, in many London sort of neighborhoods, they were, they were set up um, as a result of the cholera epidemic. So the reason why we have so many garden squares is so people could breathe some fresh air when the cholera epidemic started and in the aftermath. So as you said, you know, this is a time of, of innovation and and uh, sad as it is, it, it, it also challenges us to, to think outside the box. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end our inaugural podcast, Gayla. What do you think? I think so. Manaz, thank you so much for, for joining us on our maiden journey. We've appreciated all of your insights and your words of wisdom. And thank you. 